Okay, so Parshavu begins Perak Yud, chapter 10, and we have the final three plagues in, uh, in this week's Parsha. So last week we had Dam Svardei Akinam Arov Deber Shechin Borod, and this week we're going to have Arba, the Locust, Choshech, Darkness, and Makas Bechoros, the plague of the firstborn, uh, which, as we know, ultimately leads to the... Um, the redemption and the leaving of Mitzrayim. We also have the mitzvah of Rosh Chodesh in the week's parsha, and uh, Tefillin also to highlight those two mitzvahs. Yeah. Why are they divided seven and three? I don't know. I don't know why the last three are over here. Yeah, I hear. I don't. Know. Good question. If I come across it or you come across, let me know. I, I would think it would be five and five. All right. There's a difference between. The first five and the second five, as far as nails all of it. Yeah, it all relates. And I'm sure the number ten relates to the Asaras Adibras and the, the completion of you know brings completion of the world. Not sure what exactly the uh, ten and three is. No, interesting. I never thought of it. So now that I've now that I did think of it through you, we'll see if we uh, if we can come across uh, any interesting answers. Here we go. Hashem speaks to Moshe, come to Paro. Last week we spent, uh, last year we spent some time on the word bo, on coming as opposed to going. This is very important. We want to know, why did Hashem bring the plagues on the Egyptians? Why? So, it was not to get the Jews out of Egypt. It's not why it happened. Hashem could have taken us out of Egypt Right away. They don't need to go through this whole process. Rather, the Torah is giving us two pointers. Number one is, first of all, so I can place my signs in the midst of Mitzrayim. That this nation that has a very difficult time seeing God and only God. This nation saw a lot of gods. They didn't see one God. HaKadosh Baruch Hu brought the plagues to bring himself amongst them. Number two. The second goal of these plagues was for us, not for the Egyptians. B'nai Yisrael needed to be brought out of the Egyptian mentality which we were seeped in. And the same way the Egyptians had this mentality, Klal Yisrael were impacted by them. Were we the Egyptians? Baruch Hashem, no. We weren't the Egyptians. But the Truth of everything is, is we are impacted by our surroundings. HaKadosh Baruch Hu needed to bring the Makos for us. We in Egypt would see that and throughout all the generations would have this reality to tell, to tell over to our children what? The mockery. Not just that HaKadosh Baruch Hu brought plagues, but that the plagues were done in a way of mockery. What is a way of mockery? As we know, again, we had a focus on this last year, Parsha's bow as well, if I recall correctly, and that is everything that HaKadosh Baruch Hu does is as our shadow, it's tit for tat, it's measure for measure, this is what impressed Yisro, when we um, get up to, uh, to that Parsha, we're going to focus on that as well. Um, and the same thing holds true, not only with consequences that works measure for measure, but the way that Hashem works 
and bringing out his miracles and his signs also work in a way that brings out perfect symmetry. So, as we've explained as well, the mockery is not just that I brought myself amongst the Mitzrim, it's that I'm doing it in a way that undercuts everything that they could even possibly believe so that their belief system doesn't even start. It's a very, call it a little deep over here, but there's, you can have a belief system and then you could say, oh, but there's a better system or there's a more true system or you can undercut the entire system. And show that the whole thing is sheker, it's a mockery. The whole thing is, is laughable. As we explain Moshe, the whole way Moshe and Paro, that Paro ends up paying Moshe's tuition and changing his diapers, that's a mockery. That's Hashem not just stopping Paro and telling Paro, no, I'm in control. It's undercutting everything that you could possibly believe to be true is simply not true. And HaKadosh Baruch Hu, as we say with his sense of humor, and the irony of it, because what humor is, it's the, it's the unexpected. It's true, but unexpected. That's when things are funny. True, but un- unexpected response. So Kodesh Baruch Hu does. It's true, with the unexpected uh, sequence of events. Is, is, and, and this is what we're responsible to speak to each other about, to speak to our generations about. The mockery that we made in Mitzrayim, Veso Sosai, and my signs, Asher Santi Bam, that I placed in their midst, V'yadatem Kiyane Hashem. Okay, so Hashem's telling Moshe, and this is interesting, he's telling Moshe what the goal is. What the goal is. Like, Moshe's going to be my messenger, Hashem says. So you as my messenger need to understand what the, the end, you know, the, the end uh, vision that I have over here, we haven't started yet. Moshe's already approached Pyro, but with these last three, Hashem says, okay, let's keep our eye on the ball. Let's get our our eye long distance, and everything that we're going to work on together, Kabiyachal, so to speak, is for this purpose. The Mitzvah need to see this, and Kla Yisrael needs to see this. We need to see this. Now, what's so important about us noticing this is that through the Makos, we ultimately see Hashem's perfection. That's it. You're able to see God's perfection in everything. And through Hashem's perfection, and you know, not just control, but yeah, that, that symmetry that we keep going back to. Um, we, we as Yidden need to notice this. And Hashem's telling Maisha, this is not about Paro. It's not about Paro. It's about Egypt and it's about Klal Yisrael. So make sure that the way that we go about this in natural terms is noticeable. It's, such a, it's, it's a very important, it's such a simple thing, but it's very important to get this context of what Moshe Rabbeinu and Aaron are going to be instructed to do. So they start doing that. And Vayavo Moshe and Aaron now come to Paro and they say to him, so says Hashem, how long are you going to refuse? Stop being stubborn. They have to stop serving you and it's time for them to, to uh, start serving me. And they warn him about what's going to take, take place by the locust. I'm going to move along a little quick. So we get to, I want to, last year we focused more on the beginning. I want to get a few verses in over here. And uh, they warn him about the, the locust. And at this point, interestingly, for the first time, if you look at Pasuk Zion, Paro's servants start to pressure him. Now, we learned that Paro was demoted because he didn't want to place the Jews in servitude, and then he got his position back. We focused on this, right? Mm-hmm. He got his position back three months later um, when he ultimately agreed. Now, what his servants are doing is telling Paro, okay, enough is enough. 
And in Pasuk Zayin, in verse 7, Yom Rav Diyapar, we love, this is like enough's enough, it's a trap. Let the men go, let them serve Hashem. Listen, Mitzrayim, we're getting clapped, we're getting patched from today till tomorrow, and it's, it's too much. So, so Paro sends for Moshe and Aaron, and he says, all right, who's got to go? Who's got to go over here? Yes, yeah, so Moshe and Aaron say, well, all of us. And Paro's like, no, you can't all go. You can't all go. Lochain, um, in verse 11, gvarim. let the gvarim go. A gever, in art school translation, they'll translate it as, let the men go. Because Paro at that time thought that the men need to go bring their, bring their um, uh, sacrifices, and you can't do that amongst the impurity of Egypt, because that was Moshe's initial conversation, we're going to go for a few days. And, and the reason why we started with all that, we knew we were leaving for the long term, but the reason why um, we did that, the Bali Moser explained, is actually just to remove any opening from Paro's mouth down the road of, Oh, how do you expect me to let the people go indefinitely? I w- if you would have asked me for a short-term leave, you know, that I would have let them do. So sometimes HaKadosh Baruch Hu, uh, brings options to people to remove, that, to, to remove that claim. Okay? So first it was short-term, and now the, the servants are saying, let them go. And Paros says, okay, I'll let you go, but first of all, short-term. And second of all, he says, let the men go. Now, the word gever doesn't only mean man, good afternoon. The word gever doesn't only mean man. The word gever means a nobleman. Okay? Gever is like, an ex- it's like a nobleman. Paros actually being very, if the proper word here is koi. Koi? Like he's like playing around a little bit, being a little slick. Um, he says, says to Moshe, you know what, you, you think, you, you told me initially those people need to go to make sacrifices. You know, let your chash of a people go. And you know what he's saying by the chash of people? Nobody, nobody, nobody. You guys are a bunch of avodim, you're a bunch of low-life servants. You don't even have a hierarchy, anybody in position to do anything. That's what he means. He's kind of playing around. And interestingly, interestingly, HaKadosh Baruch Hu, as we're going to see, it gets very upset by this. Previously, Paro changed his mind. Hashem is like, Hashem's going to ultimately put Paro in his place with this because you could change your mind and you know have your Yetzirahs and have the hardening of the heart. But to start being uh, cynical about Klai Yisrael, the Rebbein Shem is not going to take any of this. And the Bali Moser explained that it's, it's what Hashem, so to speak, is going to uh, test and, and it's going to take out Paro with is based upon this word gever. He says, let the nobleman go. That's what you initially requested. And he drove them away. From Paro's face. So he called them back because of the servant's pressure. And now he's, uh, now he's being tough again. Okay. So Hashem says to Moshe, as soon as he's mocking, Hashem says, we're done. The conversation's over. It's time uh, it's time to bring the it's time to bring the locust. And the locust came and describes how how they showed up. And there was previously the plague of the hail that destroyed, but it didn't get into the roots. And the locust went and they ate up even the roots. So not, nothing was going to uh, nothing was going to grow in the future. So now Paro, as we're going to say, and this is another important point that we didn't focus on too much. We've mentioned it. And Paro's going to change his mind. Now, the way that the verse um, is going to write it is that, you know, Paro's, 
you know, hard is going to be hardened over here. So, you know, that, 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 that big question of what's happening to Paro's Bechira, the truth is, and this is, this is very important to realize, that Paro lost his Bechira during the plague. During the plague is when Paro lost his, lost his free will. People think, the way that we view it is, oh, well, there was a plague, and then Paro let us go, and then after the plague's over, Paro's heart is hardened, and he decided to change his mind. What's happening is like this. During the plague, Pyro lost his free will. There's different levels of free will. If I, every time I would eat a piece of pork, would have a lightning bolt hit me in the head and really hurt. Do I still have a choice whether to eat the pork? Yeah. I'm... Don't really have a high level of Bechira though Because it wouldn't be a smart thing to do Just not worth it You might as well eat beef You might as well stick with something similar Or some sort of plant based You know uh, Alternative To eating the pork Where you're not going to get a zap Now you're going to say Listen If it would be that every time you eat a piece of pork A lightning bolt would come down and hurt me If it would be Did I lose my Bechira? I don't lose my Bechira per se. You can still choose. It's just not a, you know. The, the, the choice is a lot easier to make now that there's a lightning bolt. But it's based on pain. It's based on pain. That's right. Pain. So what is that pain doing? What, what, what's the pain doing? What that pain is doing is actually taking away my Bechira. And that's what's happening to Paro. During the Makkah, he didn't lose his Bechira by Hashem hardening his heart. What's happening during the plague? Pyro didn't want to let us go. But every plague was like a lightning bolt zapping him straight. So what happens? You're like, okay, fine, I'll let them go. I lost my Bechira. And then as soon as the, the hurt is done, there's no more lightning bolts coming down. So now I'm back to having my Bechira. So what Pyro, what was Pyro back to? A hardening of the heart. I'm not letting them go. The bolt's gone. So it's, it's actually contrary to what we think. We're like, very often we ask the question, no, what's a Pyro? What's a Pyro? Bechira. It's the opposite. When Paru got his Bechira back, that's when his heart hardened. And that's, that's his, he, he could just blame himself for that. But it's during the plague where he gets a lower level choice that, you know, all of a sudden he's, he's being nice. So, so now Paru is quick to call Maish and Aaron. And for the first time, and we see a little bit moving along, we have a few first times in this plague. He says, Chatasi Lashem. It's a fascinating expression from Paru. He says, I sinned. I sinned to God. I sinned to Hashem, your God. Notice that. Still not my God. I sinned to Hashem, your God. And I sinned to you. Okay? Understandable. Sin to Hashem. He sinned to Klaishal by changing his mind. So he says, please forgive me this one last time. We know the end of the story, so it's not one last time. But remove this death. Remove this death from upon me. Okay? So, Moshe davens to Hashem, and the, uh, and the, the uh, locust leave. Fine. Let's begin the next one, and this is the one I want to focus on a little more. Last time we had a focus on, on Arbe, and this week I want to focus a little bit more on the on Chayshech and share a few ideas on the darkness. So, says to Hashem, 
And all, Hashem, Paro changes mind. Fine. Hashem says to Moshe, stretch out your hand towards the heavens. There's going to be darkness and there's going to be a thick darkness, a tangible darkness. Very interesting. There's a darkness that we know of that's just a lack of light. There's another darkness which actually has substance. It's thick. And in, in a way, we feel this. There's times where you're in a room and it's so dark and you, you, could, you can't breathe. You can't breathe. It's like, like you, you, you need oxygen in there. There's, it's, it's just stifling. You can't, you need... So there was, there's two stages to the darkness of Chayshech. There was just a lack of light and there was actually a tangible, like a, a thick darkness that existed. Hashem tells Moshe that's what's going to happen. Okay. Now, um, Rashi says, two stages of darkness that are that are going to uh, going to exist. Now, why why there need to be two stages of darkness? What's the point? So Rashi tells us that the, the initial stage was going to be so that the Egyptians, since we know according to the Medrash that there were Jews who died during Choshech. Um, the first stage of the of the six days of darkness, which was the first three days, was just so that the Mitzram wouldn't see the Jews who weren't worthy of leaving Egypt. They wouldn't see them dying. Mm. Okay, it's Even though they were call it, I don't want to use the word deserved, but they this is was part of Hashem's plan that the only people who would leave were people who believed in the. Redemption. People believed in the redemption and believed in the uh, abilities of HaKadosh Baruch Hu to bring around, uh, to bring about the redemption. So, uh, I don't want to focus on this too much. I don't have the shoulders for this, but it's, we got to mention it. Chazal teaches this, that ultimately our Geula of Mashiach is going to be similar to the Geula of Mitzrayim. It's going to be similar to the Geula of Mitzrayim. So we need to be careful. We need to be very careful with this. Um... Rav Shimon Schwab asks a very basic question that bothers a lot of people. And it's a worthwhile question. Um, it says that according to this medrash, that people died during Choshech, it was four-fifths. Four-fifths. Eighty percent of Bnei Yisrael died during Choshech. Okay? So besides for the Holocaust of that happening. If Holocaust is the right word, I don't know. I don't, I don't know how to use that word appropriately. I don't know if Holocaust just means death or death by bad people. If it's by bad people, this is the Ratzon Hashem, so it's not. Um, but however it is, there's a lot of Jews who didn't make it out of Egypt. Um, we know there were at least 3 million people who stood at Sinai. At least 3 million people stood at Sinai. Which means we lost a lot of people in Egypt. Ask the Shimon Schwab. One second. Uh, I mean... <laughs> So it's dark, so the Mitzram don't see during those three days. After those three days, they see a lot of fresh graves. Mm-hmm. What's the purpose? What's the purpose of that darkness? So you can say, still psychologically, there's a difference. Psychologically, there's a difference that when they come out of the darkness, they'll, they'll know that it was the Ratzon Hashem. And sometimes the Ratzon Hashem is that, you know, even for Klal Yisrael. These things are going to happen, but at least they didn't see it. Mm-hmm. The difference between knowing something and knowing that it happened, but uh, you know, and uh, but them like kind of seeing Hakadosh that itself would have been a chalashem. Okay, you could say that. But Shimon Shua, he he's very very bothered by this question. 
to a point where he says, you cannot take the Medrash at face value. Mm-hmm. Most people take the Medrash at face value. Rav Shimon Schwab in his Sefer Me'in Beis HaShueva says you cannot take this Medrash at face value. And, he's, and, he, and he explains this Medrash in, in such a fascinating way. He says, he, he brings it back to Parshas Bereshis. Parshas Bereshis. Kayin kills Hevel. And HaKadosh Baruch Hu says to Kayin, um, Hashem tells him that the, the Dumim, the bloods, plural, the multiple, the bloods of your brother are crying out to me from the earth. The bloods of your brother. So what does it mean the bloods? Killed one person. It should be the blood of your brother. So there, the Rishayim, they all explain that because when you kill one person, you're not just killing that person. Every person has an impact on the world. And you're impacting those around them. And you're impacting any potential future generations. And you're killing... So, you, uh, therefore, you, there's nobody who lives on an island. It's the way it is. And therefore, by Cain killing Hevel, he's not just killing Hevel. He's killing any opportunity that Hevel had in the world at that time, as well as potential future generations. So says of Shimon Schwab, incredible, he says really during Choshech, I don't know where his proof is, I'm sure he's got sources for this, he says really during Choshech there were individuals who passed. Individuals who Who passed away. It was a few Yechidim, Yechidim, individual, a few people. There were a few people who were like anti this whole thing, and they passed away. But everybody else ultimately made it. Ah, so what's with the four-fifths? Says Rashim and Shuav, letting us know, the Torah is letting us know that these four-fifths, from them, that impacted 80% of what could have been. Whether for that time, whether for later generations, but you can't look at any yid in a nutshell. You can't look at it like, oh, that's one person. We're not one person. We're not one person. Every interaction that we have, we're, we're, we're learning from each other, we're teaching each other, we're doing... You're going to say that when one person is lost, that that one person is, is lost to the world? Nobody is one person. And therefore, says with Shem and Shab, and again, I don't know where he, where he, how he gets the number of four-fifths, 80%, but you're going to talk about, you know, what... The, the impact that these people could have had, the Torah is letting us know that it could have been, uh, it could have been so broad. So he, he takes it, that's his interesting approach that he takes, and he says that it wasn't really the four-fifths, and hence the question's answered according to that, uh, according to that mahalach, according to, to that approach. It really wasn't 80% of people at that time. Now, most of the other Mepharshim do explain it was 80%, and uh, based upon that, there's a lot of Torah. There's a lot of Torah that comes out that is crucial, according to this, the majority opinion, to understand the, the experience of B'nai Yisrael during the Exodus, it's mind-blowing. Because you're dealing with 80% of the children there at the time are orphans. Because mm-hmm. it's only impacted adults. Children aren't held accountable. So you're dealing with millions Millions of orphans leaving. You're dealing with people who are coming out of like Shiva and Shleishim. They didn't have these halachas at the time. But your people, like you, Klai Yisrael is going from a place of tremendous 
Imagine the trauma. The, the trauma of the Makos. HaKadosh Baruch Hu's hand taking down the Mitzrim. And then just towards the end, like the ninth plague, Choshech, like we're almost out of this. And like, boom. Like you lose a large portion of Klai Yisrael. There's not a single person in Klai Yisrael, you can imagine, not a single one of them, who didn't have a, a, a lost sibling, parent, uh, friend. friend, huh? I just think friend, yeah. Yeah, friends, like, and who, who's lost by the same HaKadosh Baruch Hu, by God's same plan that he's doing, taking out the Mitzrim. This goes back to the beginning of our Parsha, where Hashem says the message of the, the miracles and all the makos is not just for, uh, it wasn't just to take out the Mitzrim. It was to show my hand in the world. And we're go- there's going to be perfection here. And there's going to be uh, accountability on behalf of the Mitzrim. And at the same time, when you have something as great and as grand as what's happening by Yitzhiyas Mitzrayim, you need to be worthy of it. You need to be worthy. And that's a trem- it's really a, a, a very powerful uh, idea. That's happening over here. Then in the second part of the, the, the last three days, that's where the darkness, that's where the darkness got, uh, got thicker and the Mitzvah could even move. There's the, the Medrash, similar Medrash tells us, what, how did they survive? How'd they survive? Three days, they, can't, they, 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 they couldn't move. Couldn't move. Like by the second stage of darkness, you had somebody like this, right? They're like stuck like that for three days. Like you can't push it. And the, that, that the Medrash tells, the Medrash Rabbah says that B'nai Yisrael fed the Mitzrim for three days. Oh, really? They fed them. Wow. Why? Because they were hungry. <laughs> and they were in pain. And they, they were Yidin. The Yidin went around. That's, that's what we do. You ever heard of the IDF? Yeah, the Israeli? They just do the, the, like, what are you doing? This person tried to kill you. You're going you're gonna to heal them? You're going to take, take care of them? You're going to sponsor yeah. whatever it is? So it's like, it's mind-blowing. So while they're collecting the jewels, so they're feeding that community? So we didn't collect. So that's, so we'll get there. We didn't actually collect the jewels. What we did during that time is we looked for it. Not a single Jew took anything. Not a Jew took anything during darkness. You will see later on, when we were leaving Egypt, we requested it was during this time that Hashem wanted us to find out that it was actually there, but we didn't. We, we never took anything. It was all. It was actually completely given over to us by uh, by the Mitzrim when we left Mitzrayim. They wanted to give it to us. We'll focus on that Bez Hashem soon. But we, yeah, we did look through their cupboards and you know see uh, see what's in. At the same time, they're in Tzara and it says the the Yidden, the Yidden fed them for three. You know. Because they were hungry. These same people, they're like, yeah, that, that's what's in our DNA. That's the DNA of a Jew. We're Rachmanim Baishonim and We can't stop ourselves. We can't help ourselves. Yeah, go ahead. So when we learn that each Makkah is supposed to be Mitzvah, yeah. and that Correct. is because the Mitzrim are It was a message to B'nai Yisrael and to the Mitzrim of Hashem's perfection. I'll give you an example. I don't remember every single one offhand. We could look, we could look it up. It's, it's uh, right here. I believe one of these farm it has a, has a list. I don't think I have it printed out here. But for example, just one that we're dealing with, Choshech. It says that the, one of the ways that the Mitzrim would abuse the Jews is while they were eating their dinners with their families, they would 
um, have the Jews stand next to their dinner table with a lantern balanced on their head. That if they moved a drop, hot oil or wax would drip down and burn them. That was one of the things that, that was widespread amongst the Egyptians in, in what they would do. If a Jew didn't do this, you know, they'd kill them or, or give them a whipping. So they, they were forced to do this. So during Choshech, there was darkness. There's nobody holding a lantern for you and you can't move for three days. The, the, so the, everything that was done ultimately was in a way for something that the Mitzrim did do to the Yidin. And anybody who was observant enough to see this saw within each plague another element of, of Mida, connected Mida. Yeah. Yeah. You see Hashem in all of this and all this perfection. I still can't wrap my head around what happened with the golden cat. We we got into, we went through all of this. Hashem went through all yeah. of this and going going through the sea, going through right. all of these building, building, building till we receive the Torah. We hear we hear Hashem. We hear all of this. Is it that delicate? Is it that Easy to to get yeah. off the the derrick. I mean, I don't know. There's so we'll, we'll focus. I, I want to focus yeah. on you know Bez Hashem. Make sure we focus on this when we get to the parsha of the of the eagle. Okay. Um, but what you do see is a fact, and that is the reality of this world is that no matter how much we've experienced. That just makes the Yitzhahara more experienced. And he's going to have to come up with new ways to give it to us. I, I guarantee you, and we'll, again, we'll focus in, and we'll see this is the truth. The Chet Egel was done completely for Yiddishkeit. The decision to make the Chet Egel was to preserve Kal Yisrael. We were being religious fanatics. Right wing, as you can imagine. Right way by by making the the calf, it, nothing to do again, just the opposite. It, was, it had nothing to do. We want to get rid of Hashem. Nothing to do with getting rid of Moshe. It was finding a good, strong avenue to connect to Hakadosh Baruch Hu, and this is going to be the avenue. It was complete religious zealotry. Just like and you could be. I mean, we find this nowadays. We could do. I could do this myself. I could do it myself. What is it? I I was. I mean, I don't want to get too specific, but there's. A decision that I had made in my family it has to do with raising my children and something that I felt was the right thing to do for their Yiddishkeit. And then I found out this morning, I spoke to uh, one of my rabbis, and I found out that I wasn't doing it right. I wasn't doing it right. He disagreed with, with uh, it was an area of, I felt it was important for the spirituality of, of my children. Something that I was, uh, you know, a, a decision that we had made, something that I wanted. And my rabbi said, I'm wrong. So I said, okay, I'm wrong. I'm not going to be as, you know, I'm wrong. That's it. So what a, you think you're doing Yiddishkeit. You're not. But we're never going to be in a stage of religiosity that we're not going to struggle with that. The great, the more we climb in religiousness, the more we're at risk of turning the frumkite into Judaism. And Frumkite has nothing to do with Judaism. Institutionalizing, it's like you mean? Institutionalizing could be one area of it. It could be, you know, where, 
you know, when you have a system and a structure, that structure can be abused to change really what the goal of Yiddishkeit is, again, which is to be davok to HaKadosh Baruch Hu. But it's like we also talked about when I said something about when you, when, when all the, the uh, <clears throat> Yaakov, right, they didn't ask Kashayla. They didn't ask Kashayla. And again, they're the Shvatim. So I'm, I'm sure they're even right. Like, I know, I know for a fact, if I, if I was there, my decision would have been, 50 million times worse <laughs> than anything. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not, you're not judging him. Again, you know, it's beyond. But yeah, to that extent, the Torah is letting us know in the subtle way that they made a mistake. The Torah finds it important that we have to know this so that we can be self-aware for ourselves. We need to be self-aware that these mistakes do and will exist. And as they say, the Torah is either written by Hashem or by an anti-Semite. One or the other. <laughs> One or the other. It's not like, you know, if you're, you're going to say it's not from God... <laughs> It's, it, it doesn't make us look good. No. Uh-huh. And the reason for that is, is because it lets us be aware of the, of the pitfalls. Let's be aware of the pitfalls. You go through an entire, entire exodus and then you go to the golden calf? What? You know what that says about Kal Yisrael? Yeah. It's human nature. Yeah. yeah. What are you saying is the difference between Yiddishkeit and Frumkeit? Frumkeit could become a religion. Frumkeit, if, if it's a social thing. Yeah. If it's a social thing, so then Frumkeit itself could become an avodazar. Like I have to get a nicer shetel than her or something. Or, or even I have to wear a shetel because she wears a shetel. Or, or I'm starting to live based upon a society as opposed to based upon you know, looking upstairs. Frum Which Hashem's not really upstairs, you, but you got know what I'm saying. Frum yeah. Kite is when you are afraid to let anybody know that your mother's mother was a convert because nobody will make a shit up with your children. It could be. That's Frumkite. It could be. That's well, if that is, if if that is, if it is, so then that, that could be a pitfall of it. If that's right. what Frumkite... Listen, we're all going to translate it in our own way. Right. right? The way that... My parents, Zechariah and Lebracha, used that word was in a very holy way. We wouldn't be talking like this. But we're talking like this because people don't use it in that fashion. So people use, you know, um, the, uh, uh, this, is some, this is actually something that, that uh, my father, Zechariah and Lebracha, shared with me. He said, Frumkite and Krumkite are phonetically related. The word Krum in Yiddish means like a little, like twisted like a pretzel. It's a little, it's a little twisted. Which means, but his, his idea was that you can't make that, you know, sometimes our frumkite is actually not something straight. It doesn't knock. You, again, you need a society, you need a religion. It's not a negative thing. But it can't become our local level desire. That I'm serving, a, I'm serving a frumkite. It's not what it is. I'm serving Hashem. So part of serving Hashem is being, is, is, is trying to be in the best relationship I could be with Him, which means... That's the expression of being from, right? right? So in its truest form, it's a good thing. But if you're, if you're being from because you want to be from, and there's no, there's no Hashem in it, there's no truth and MS to its, uh, in its most uh, true form, so then it's, it's another, it's another f- it could be another form of idol worship. It could be, unfortunately. It, it, it could be that because I don't know what I'm actually... Serving, so the, the, what's what's so profound and important about uh, um, 
Yiddishkeit. And this is why we could be so great. We could be reach such high levels and still need to uh, and, and still need to be on the guard for mistakes. Because the the more you know, the more the the more educated we are, the more we can really uh, um, connect to Hakadosh Baruch Hu, and we feel connected. And now that I feel connected, I want to do more. And you got to make sure that that more isn't something else. You got to make sure that more isn't isn't something else. So that's okay. It's a pitfall. And it's, listen, just the fact that we're having this conversation is a healthy thing. It's it it, it allows us to think a few times. Don't get OCD about it. You get, but you you just think about it. You do your best, and that's it. But don't be brain dead. You know, just don't not think. Sometimes people just still not thinking. Yeah. Or in another way to put it, don't be more from than Hashem dictates. Good. There's no six hundred fourteenth mitzvah. <laughs> yeah. There's no six hundred fourteenth mitzvah. Right. Okay. Let's keep going in uh, in Chosha. We've got a couple more uh, a couple more uh, of ideas over here. So Maisha Rabbeinu stretches out uh, his stick and to, uh, towards the heavens, and we have the six days of we have the six days of Chayshech. Okay, Separo summons Maisha, and he says, "All right, fine, you win. All right, go serve Hashem. You can take all the people, but no animals." Not done. So Maisha says, okay, Para, not only are we going to take our animals, you're going to force us to take the animals. You're going to hand them over to us. And he used an expression, he says, um, This is Paragyud Pasuch Avav, chapter verse uh, 26. Even our cattle will go with us. Not a hoof will be left behind the Mitzrayim. Not a hoof. Um, he says, and don't tell me oh, you can take some animals and not all animals because this way you'll serve Hashem. We're taking everything. We're taking everything. And this is going to say, oh, you need all them for sacrifices? I don't know how many sacrifices I need right now. Uh, I'm not sure. He's like, Therefore, we're, uh, we're taking all the animals. Okay. So on this, it's, it's an strange expression of, of a parsa, not a hoof. Not a hoof will remain behind. It's very interesting that the word parsa means hoof, and the word parsa is actually a parcel of land. A parsa, like uh, there's certain, like um, it's, it's re- refers to a a size. It's a measurement of land in in halacha. So the Chassam Seifer says that the reason why the Torah wants to use this expression of parsa of referring to it as a hoof as opposed to any other body part is because um, B'nai Yisrael and he says B'nai Yisrael needed to work 400 years we were expected to work 400 years uh, initially we ended up in Egypt for 210 years a lot of tire on that too and the 400 years are opposite the 400 parsa of Eretz Yisrael he says the size of Eretz Yisrael is 400 parsa and every year of labor that we had in Mitzrayim was going to earn us a four hundredth of Eretz Yisrael. Okay, so here's the deal: we weren't in Mitzrayim for four hundred years; we were in Mitzrayim for two hundred and ten years. So Paro sees that we're leaving Mitzrayim after two hundred and ten years, and he said, uh, "He's and this is in the beginning." 
of our parsha in verse ten in pasuk yud, parakid pasuk yud. He says, you know, um, he says to Moshe, you want to leave, but kira'a neged penechem. It's not good for you to leave. Says the Chassam Seifer, this is what Paro was hinting. Paro was saying, oh, you Jews supposed to be here for 400 years. You've only been in Egypt for 210 years. So you're not going to get all the land of Israel. People are Talmud Echamim when it works, serves them. You know, when it, when it serves your needs, all of a sudden you, you know what you have to know. Enough to get you in trouble. Yeah? He says, it's, it's bad for you. You're not going to earn all of Eretz Yisrael. 210 out of 400, a little over 50%, and that's it. So Maishar responds. He says, thank you, Paro, for your uh, wonderful concern. But... He says, um, because of the 210 years that we were here and 86 years of forced labor, which ultimately it was, he says like this, it's beautiful. Hashem told Avram, we're going to be servants in Egypt. What does a servant mean? What does it mean? How hard do you need to work to be a servant? You don't need to work as hard as Paro made us work. So he says to Paro, Hashem told Avram that B'nai Yisrael is going to be, have 400 years of work. The, the amount of work that you've put on us, this, 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 is, this is beautiful. This is, they know what they're talking about over here with these few words. It says, the amount of work that you put on us, the 210 years that we lived during, the 86 years of forced labor, equals the 400 years that God intended when he told Avram that your children are going to be workers in Egypt. But you worked us to the bone... And therefore he says, since it, the amount of work that we've done have equaled 400 years, not a hoof will remain behind, which means not a parsa of land in Egypt will remain behind. We've earned the 400 pars in Egypt because you, Paro, have worked us the, the uh, amount of 400 years. And this also answers such an a, a, a important question, which, again, there's a lot of radon, a lot of Torah, which is, Hashem told Avram about the 400 years of servitude. But what is servitude? What does it mean? And this is also why Pyro is held accountable for all this. This is another reason. Because, yeah, Hashem told Avram, so Pyro, first of all, you don't need to be the one to carry it out. So you're held accountable. And number two is, you want to put this uh, all back on God, which is an excuse. Again, Pyro making an excuse. That using God when it's to his advantage. Right? It's his excuse. And again, it's the Yitzhahar. Pyro is the Yitzhahar. So Pyro is saying, no, I'm doing this for my frumkite. God said, God said, you're going to be work. You're going to have to do work. So, you know, so first of all, Paro doesn't need to be you, so you're still at the God. And second of all, how do you know, what do you know what work means? You know what it means? Maybe work means that we're going to be in Golis. That's it. We're going to be Golis. We're not going to be in our holy land. We'll be in tribe. But to work us to the bone, says Moshe to Paro, Parsa, we're done. We've worked hard enough. We've done, you know, the, the promise that Hashem told Avram about Klaishol leaving uh, after the after the years of work and then going out with tremendous wealth is uh, its time is up. We've earned our Eretz Yisrael and uh, and we're going to leave. Okay, so much more. We'll hold it here. Um, and uh, Yashikaya, thank you so much.